As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Just take a moment and let's just expand the universe a little bit, shall we? Spoken for Audio Productions presents... Legends Library. I got a bad feeling about this. You will find that it is you who are mistaken. About a great many things. You must unlearn what you have learned. You will find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. There's always a bit of truth in legends. And now, here are your hosts, Lisa Mountain and Cole Pugh. everybody i'm lisa and you're listening to legends library we are a podcast dedicated to the legends lines of the star wars books uh today we've got a bit of a different episode we uh we we are missing cole but we have an amazing guest host with us uh we have alan dean foster so thank you alan for being here today my pleasure so recently one of our listeners brought to our attention the the letter that you wrote to disney um, so we just kind of wanted to talk about that and your experiences, uh, and especially we want to talk about Splinters of the Mind's Eye. But if you could relate um, the contents of your letter to the listeners. Well, basically what happened was uh, I had written the first three Alien books more subsequently, but those are the ones at issue here. And 20th Century Fox, we found out, uh, had the rights, you know, re- reacquired the rights to... Uh, the books, and I had done a couple of the first two books, of course, for Lucasfilm, Star Wars, mm-hmm. the novelization of the first film, and Splinter the Mind's Eye, and on all of these five books prior to the Disney acquisition, we had, by we I mean my agency, had regularly received royalties and royalty reports, and they just stopped. Okay. And my, my agent uh, made strenuous efforts to get in touch with somebody at Disney and other people and find out what was going on, and nothing happened for 
quite a long time, and when she finally did get in touch, and I'm I'm condensing here, uh, they basically said that uh, after somebody finally agreed to get back to her, said that uh, well we did acquire the uh, the assets of those corporations, but we didn't acquire any of the obligations. Oh. which strikes to a very basic point of copyright law that extends far beyond books and movie novelizations to just about anything you can think of, at which point uh, Science Fiction Writers of America got involved, and mm-hmm. uh, they kind of, uh, by they, I mean some lower-level flunkies at Disney shuffled us around, mm-hmm. and it was decided, uh, with great reluctance, I might add, because nobody wanted to do this, I certainly didn't, to go public with all of this. Yeah. At which point the uh, the issues hit the fan and everything went viral. And now uh, Disney is talking to, well, as they would say in Hollywood, my people are talking to the mouse's people. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully this can all get resolved very quickly to yeah. everyone's mutual satisfaction. It should never have gone this far. But this is what happens sometimes when, when people uh, in the upper echelons of corporate governance are not made aware of what's going on at the lower levels and it's kind of like to make an analogy if you if you get a a pinprick in Africa and you don't pay attention to it sometimes you lose your leg yeah and so we hope it doesn't uh, go any further than it has and as i said we are all talking but that's the basic point uh that's the basic uh, problem at issue that we're talking about everybody just everybody on my end, we just want the royalties that are owed. Again, mm-hmm. we weren't. it's not even a question that we weren't getting royalties. We weren't even getting royalty reports. Okay. Basically, basically, we were being ignored. By we, I mean myself, my agency, and eventually SFWA. And we're not being ignored now, which is nice. And as I said, uh, discussions are underway, and I hope to be able to report actually by the end of the month. I'm just picking a date out of thin air, that everything's been resolved amicably and everybody goes home happy and it's never mentioned again. Yeah. Well, I hope that's the case. Definitely. Yeah. It was, I found it it was a little heartbreaking to, to find that, that this was happening to authors, especially um, who are, you know, involved with Disney. So. Well, it is, I've been a Disney fan my whole life. I used to collect animation and I had every Disney film I could lay my hands on and, we went to Disneyland two weeks after it opened, yeah. uh, back in the Jurassic, and uh, it's a shame that it had to come to this. But again, I, I put the uh, the onus for this on some lower-level people who just thought that probably they could shrug it off and yeah. everything would just evaporate. And can't let that happen. It isn't right. The sad thing is that there's not that much money involved, certainly not by Disney standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not talking millions of dollars here. We're just talking what's owed. And exactly. f- for them to, you know, for it to be dragged out like this into into public eye is something that never should have happened. But again, that's what happens when when people at the top don't know what people at the bottom are doing, and there's no communication between the two. Things get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that you know, social media has at least helped with the situation and now there will be a, an outcome than being ignored. So that's great. Yes, we're, we're, we're moving forward and uh, hopefully quickly. Yeah. 
So we uh, we did read Splinters of Mind's Eye, and it was actually my first time um, reading the book, and I I really liked it. Uh, I I'd been talking about it for a few years with like my family and things like that, and just saying you know how this was the alternative to if the New Hope movie didn't succeed in in the way that it did. But when you when you were writing this book, like. What kind of work were you doing with George at that point? Like, how many times had you watched the movie? Were you writing it before the movie came out? Oh, the movie was still in production. Okay. The movie hadn't come out yet. Uh, I hadn't seen the movie. I don't know that anybody had seen the completed movie at the point when I started working on Splinter. And that includes George and Gary Kurtz and Charlie Levincott and everybody else. The movie wasn't finished. And I had to kind of take a, a running leap into empty space, as it were, Mm-hmm. and take what was available from what I had from Star Wars, which was the screenplay version I was given, and some of Ralph McQuarrie's pre-production paintings, and yeah. a couple of little very basic uh, rough clips that I had seen, and go with that. And the the sole instructions I were given were, you can't use the character of Han Solo, because yeah. Harrison Ford hadn't signed on for anything future. And since I couldn't use Harrison, uh, excuse me, Han Solo... I didn't see how I could use Chewbacca, certainly at that point. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing was, uh, as you alluded to, the film had, the book had to be something that could be filmed on a low budget. Mm-hmm. So that there would be material there where George could use pre existing costumes and props and backgrounds uh, and film something that could be done a lot cheaper and still serve as a sequel to the first film. Okay. But other other than that, uh, there were no instructions. So I I just kind of invented the story as I went along based on the material that I had. You know, for the book itself, I was really thinking of how well it fits in with all the other Star Wars books I've read. Like, even though you were the first, like the godfather of of the expanded universe, it really ties in with so many of the stories. Well, that's probably because if it does is because the subsequent stories had that as source material. Exactly. And they were able to refer back, they were able to refer back to that. Uh, they still refer back to that. I mean, we just saw uh, material scenes set on planet Mimban. Exactly. Which is planet from Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which is fine. I, as a fan, I just get a huge kick out of that. Yeah. Uh, you, you love it when somebody who's basically making change in a grocery store turns out to be a major character in the eighth chapter of a book or something because it's totally <laughs> unexpected. And like, yet it's like recognizing somebody on the street who you found interesting. Mm-hmm. So I love it when stuff like that is, is done. And of course, I have no claim to any of that material because mm-hmm. even though it was an original novel, it was a work for hire set in somebody else's universe. Yeah. So that's, that's par for the course. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all. As I said, as a fan, I love to see stuff like that. So if it ties into any you know, subsequent books or subsequent films or TV shows or anything else, or somebody wants to lift something from it, that's great. And I had a lot of fun writing the book because I had essentially complete freedom in what, what I wanted to do. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you invented everything, basically, at this point. Um, there, well, there was a line I really liked um, in the story that Luke says, and it, it kind of really reminded me of something that, you know, in the way that Yoda speaks where he goes, survive we will if the force is with us. Uh, that I was wondering if that was something that you came up with or something that George kind of structured you to do. No, that, that was mine. 
Everything in the book is mine, except for a few very basic things. Okay. Like, uh, if, if it's not derivative from the first Star Wars film, mm -hmm. uh, I came up with it because I had to. Exactly. And that, that little bit of Yoda-like language, uh, that's just something that uh, you know, I threw in there because he's, he's, kind of, uh, he's kind of imitating his teacher, which I thought would be cool because people mm -hmm. do imitate their teachers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I couldn't have him speak like that throughout the entire book. But yeah. throwing that one, you know, throwing a line or two here and there, that, that works out fine. Yeah, exactly. It was pretty neat when they were on Mimbound. There was also that scene that, yeah, it's very similar to what happened in the Han Solo film where, you know, they're thrown into that prison cell and there's these creatures behind them. And then, you know, the, the stormtroopers or guards, they kind of laugh and walk away. You know, yeah. predicting they're going to get eaten, and but of course, you know, like in the film, they turn out to be allies. Right. Well, when you borrow something, or you let me rephrase that: when you utilize something from a previous work, uh, unless it needs to be a direct quote, whether mm -hmm. in dialogue or visual or anything else, you do want to change things around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're repeating. You're just basically repeating yourself. So. Stuff like that is fine. It's great when it it's great when it works and and when it's used. And again, I enjoy seeing it as much as anybody else. Yeah. So, how were you originally brought into Star Wars? Well, uh, the the editor at uh, Delray Books, which is a division of Ballantine, Judy Lynn Delray, had mm -hmm. acquired the rights to the film and needed somebody to adapt it into book form. And I had already done a number of such projects for Delray. So she came to me and said, would you be interested? And I said, uh, what's it about? Who's doing it? And she said, well, it's kind of space opera, we think, and George Lucas is doing it. And I knew George from THX 1138 and American Graffiti. So I said, sure. So they sent me over to, they proposed me, I presume, mm -hmm. and they sent me over to see George's lawyer. Uh, on Hollywood Boulevard to vet me, I presume, uh, ascertain that I that I was not an axe murderer and that I, you know, <laughs> I was a normal human being uh, as much as a writer can be, I guess. And that apparently went well. And I was then sent out to see George at Industrial Light and Magic, which at that time was a rented warehouse in Van Nuys, California, less than ten minutes from where I grew up, coincidentally. So I knew exactly where it was. And I went over there to meet George, and presumably for the same similar reasons, so that we could chat and you know, see that we could get along and that there wouldn't be any immediate personality conflicts. Mm -hmm. and we didn't talk a lot. I was frankly surprised that he had any time for me at all, because I had some idea of what he was going through at the time, trying, trying to get his film finished. And we, uh, we hit it off just fine, as far as, you know, from my perspective anyway. Again, mm -hmm. we didn't spend a lot of time together. But uh, enough, you know, he was showing me around, here's the Death Star, here's this, you know, beach basketball-sized plastic thing, and, uh, <laughs> you know, his enthusiasm was contagious, which it has to be on a project like that, and I was just Absolutely. as enthusiastic, and uh, he said, he said well, what do you think of the script? And I said, I think if you can get it all on screen, I think it'll be a terrific picture. And it, it, the conversation went along those lines. We were in agreement on everything. We didn't conflict with anything. Mm -hmm. We went back to making the movie, and I went off to write the two books because it was a two-book contract, both 
the novelization and Splinter were contracted yeah. for at the same time. And that's how I got involved. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I am a big Carrie Fisher fan. Um, did you ever get to meet her at all when you were working on the books? Not when I was working on the book, no. Okay. Uh, because they were all off someplace shooting the movie. Yeah. There, and mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, there's just so many lines. It, it definitely felt like it was either a mix of Princess Leia or Carrie Fisher, you know, because your character with, of Leia, she's very mouthy. <laughs> yes. That's, that's the impression mouthy. I got from the film. Yeah. This is basically the way I felt about the character of Princess Leia was she's young, but she's somebody who you, who's used to being in command and control, and uh, she's trying to save you know, the rebellion, as it were, and these two idiots come along, one of whom's a, a no-good smuggler, and the other one who's a farm kid, and mm-hmm. these are the ones who are supposed to save her and help her save the rebellion, and she's just, she's more impatient than anything else, mm-hmm. was the feeling I got. It was like, look, if you two are the best I've got to help me, I'm going to have to make do with it, but I'd really have rather have General so-and-so and Admiral such-and-such. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was just or a Jedi. A gut from yeah, not not that she was bitchy, just that she was a strong personality. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, she does talk a lot, and you you look for certain areas of dramatic conflict when you're writing a story. If everybody just gets along fine, you don't have a lot of uh, you don't have a, a lot of uh, drama there. So there's yeah, you know contrast back and forth between and Luke's Luke in my uh, my take on the story was that uh, look. You know, I'm risking my life here to help you out and and to save you and all of that. And why are you uh, why are you putting me down so much? I mean, I'm being <laughs> I'm being very concise here, but I'm trying to get a feel for these two characters. You understand? While I'm writing the book, whom I've not seen on screen, yeah, I've only seen a couple of still shots of them, so I have no idea really what their screen personalities are going to be like. So in many ways, I had to develop them myself for purposes of the book. Well, I think you capture them very well, you know, especially well, with with Leia. <laughs> well, thank with you. No- I did meet yeah. Carrie Fisher many years later after I had done, uh, just before I did uh, the adaptation of uh, The Force Awakens at yeah. a Star Wars, oh. Star Wars get-together in Orange County, California, I think. Okay, and it was a very it was a very brief but memorable meeting. I bet hmm. she's a great kisser. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, I I liked it, the. It was funny. Yeah, <laughs> That's really funny. I like the dynamics of the characters that um, how they kept fighting and like physically fighting in the book too. Like when there's that scene where they're like rolling around the mud and then those miners yes. catch, catch them. And then say, yeah. you know, we have to do a citizen's arrest, and uh, and then they start fighting them, and <laughs> like I can definitely see her just pummeling a guy in the face. Yes, no well, again, I had to I had to develop all of this from essentially nothing. Yeah. What I what I had seen of the film was just you know a few shots of of a scene where the Tie Fighters attack the Millennium Falcon. Okay. And and that was about it. Oh wow! As far as anything actually seen from the rough cut of the film or outtakes, not outtakes. Um, um, Clips, yeah. Just, 
bits and pieces. But I'd seen nothing of the characters, nothing at all. Okay. Hmm. Pretty interesting. So if they seem a little off or a little different or a little rougher around the edges than one might expect, uh, that's to be expected from the fact that, A, I hadn't seen them on screen, hadn't seen their screen characters develop, and B, we're now talking about it from a perspective of almost half a century later. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get the, um, the Dark Horse Comics version of the of Splendors of the Mind's Eye? Yeah, they sent me copies. That was very nice of them. I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, I flipped through it for the first time today, and it was very much like the book. So my worry was, you know, they would go deviate from the story, but looks like it was pretty accurate, which is what I like. Well, at, at that time, there wasn't any call to deviate from stories that they were adapting because there was no expanded universe. Yeah. So there was nothing to expand into. Mm-hmm. And so they really didn't have a whole lot of choice except to follow the uh, follow the book. As things develop further on, you know, people can go all over the place with this stuff as long as it meets corporate criteria. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel about when you discovered that Luke and Leo were actually brother and sister? The same way as any other fan. Yeah. I was shocked. <laughs> Never saw it coming. Mm-hmm. No, nobody said nothing to me. <laughs> and it was like I had always seen that as kind of uh, a relationship triangle, where mm-hmm. assuming they're not brother and sister, because there was no suggestion or indication of that in any material I was given or in the screenplay or anywhere else, that uh, that Luke and Leia and Han Solo and Leia were all kind of a little group here, and that Luke and, and, and Han were kind of competing for her affection. I mean, there's yeah. the scene where she they swing over the trench um, in in the first film, and she gives him a nice kiss. Uh, you can interpret that as a sisterly kiss or not. If you look at it in the film, I don't think it looks particularly sisterly, mm. uh, nor or her attitude or the way she looks at him. And then, of course, there's the, the cut shot, uh, the cut sequence, I should say, later on, The Empire Strikes Back, where there's this little, you know, you can feel a little tension between Luke and Han when they're discussing Leia, and uh, and that was cut for obvious reasons, because at some point in there, George decided that they were going to be brother and sister. Exactly. It's all been an evolving universe and evolving familial relationships from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not like anybody sat down and plotted out, well, this is what we're going to do for the next 10 episodes, as we well know, for the next 10 or 20 episodes in the next century of Star Wars. That's not how these things work. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, I really enjoyed the book. I think it fits very well with, with the expanded universe. I always sure. thought it would have made a really nice you know, movie for TV, again, filmable on a low budget. Yeah, between between episodes four and five, but I mean, you could have changed the relationship around without any problem. Yeah, it's a exactly. nice little adventure story, but it was not to be, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'm glad George got to make his own vision, make what he wanted to do. Would I have yeah. liked to have seen it as a film? Sure. What writer wouldn't? Mm-hmm. But that's not how, that's not why the book was commissioned, and that's not why it was written. Yeah. Uh, it was there if it was there if it was needed. And it wasn't needed, not for that purpose anyway. Exactly, yeah. Well, there, there was another line um, where 
Vader says to him, you know, Kenobi's trained you well, and obviously we see that on screen. Yes. Yes, that's true. Again, bits and pieces are, are able to be brought forward if they mm-hmm. fit into subsequent canon, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and again, that's fine. That's fine things. Uh, you know, Maybe you can't use the whole screenplay, but you can use a little bit from here and the planet from there. And if that's helpful, that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. So when you were you were brought back in later on for uh, the approaching storm, right? What kind of books did you read at that point? Like, did you get anything from them, or were you kind of exploring other authors at, in the Star Wars at that point? I hadn't read any other Star Wars. Oh, really? No, I have I, I have my own universes. Yeah, my own universes. I have my yeah my own universes, and I'm busy in them, and I'm writing books set in um, other franchises, like yeah. Alien and Chronicles of Riddick and mm-hmm. The Thing and on and on and on. And I, there are only so many hours in the day, and I <laughs> do read other things besides science fiction and fantasy. Of course. And did a lot of traveling, and there were many other things that occupied my time. Yeah. What I, what I had was, what they gave me, since you asked for The Approaching Storm, I was asked for many years, by Judy Lynn particularly, you know, would I do another, would I do a Star Wars spinoff book? Okay. And I told her, I said, I don't want to do a book about Chewbacca's third cousin's uncle, which is where (laughs) everything was headed all over the place. And I turned it down for years and years, and then they said, well, we have, we'd like you to do, we're going to have two books done, set between episodes one and two. Mm -hmm. There's actually a line in, in the film, in episode one, and we, we'd like you to take that line. This is the line about there's trouble on Anson. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we also have this character that has been proposed named Luminara Unduli and her Padawan, Baris Ulfi. Mm-hmm. And we'd like you to use them. And then they showed me pictures of the character. And suddenly here I am presented with a black female Jedi. And I just thought that was, well, this is great. We should have done this a long time ago. And it's not just a distant spinoff. It actually fits into the timeline of the films. And I said I would do it. And then beyond that, it was like, go invent a novel. Mm -hmm. So I had to come up with all these other things. And uh, I was able to put a hut back in there, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> always always enjoyed Jabba. He's a, you know, he and his family are or he and his relations are great villains. And the exactly. main thing I enjoyed about that was developing an entire new planet with an alien ecology and uh, local dominant species. And since people ask sometimes they say what was your favorite thing about writing the book? It was the dance sequence with the lightsaber. That's fun. You remember that because I love dance. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about lightsabers, uh, well, many things bothered me about lightsabers, but Star Wars is science fantasy, not science fiction. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, but the thing that always bothered me about lightsabers was you're, you're far more likely to cut your foot off than to damage an opponent. But this is obviously, this has been debated for decades. But that aside, assuming you're not going to do that, what else could you do with a lightsaber? Yeah. And I thought a dance at night, uh, very martial artsish, artsish. Mm-hmm. would be spectacular to see. And I got to write that. 
Oh, these are the cool. sorts of things that, that writers come up with that make it fun for them to write books. Yeah, exactly. Well, you have some experience in martial arts as well. Well, a little bit, yeah. It's not, not kendo, which is what it should have been with the lightsaber. I, yeah. I had three years of karate with uh, Chuck Norris Studios. Aaron Norris was my principal advanced instructor. And so, yes, but I've always been interested. In, I'm interested in everything. Yeah, I agree, and yeah. I think if you're going to write science fiction, you have to be interested in everything. Absolutely. Um, I've been kind of writing my own fun Star Wars story, and I actually took Kendo in order to, okay. you know, to, to see how to, to move, because you can't just write about fighting if I don't know how to fight with a sword. Outstanding. Good. Well, yeah. I was on the UCLA fencing team. Oh, really? That's I, I don't cool. mention that very often. My freshman year at UCLA, they took me on the team, and I ended up, I, I had gotten to about a one and two record, so I wasn't a complete complete flop, but I had a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. And then after about the third third meet, I found out that the freshmen were expected to carry the equipment for the juniors and seniors. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And I thought, right. I know fencing, yeah, I know fencing has a lot of traditions, but this is the 20th century, not the 18th, and I'm not going to do this, and I quit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, there was definitely some strains when I was doing it. <laughs> One of the senseis was a, a little more aggressive than, you know, what I would say is normal. But, uh, mm. yeah. Well, they have all these traditions and stuff. And I said, well, that's not the kind of tradition I'm interested in perpetuating. Yeah, You know, exactly. carry your own gear and I'll go do something else. <laughs> but, Which you know, I it's did, actually. You had, so. Sorry? It's still an experience, at least you did that. Oh, sure. I actually mm-hmm. took, uh, I went from there to uh, contemporary dance. That's awesome. Which, which I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one thing, I, like I say, I always liked dance, and for another, there were probably like 15 girls and two guys in the whole class. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking around at all of these guys taking soccer and stuff and saying, you guys have no clue. You really don't. <laughs> So that was fun. I got an A, too. Oh, fantastic. Very proud of myself. I would be, too. So so I had dance and fencing and uh, karate and all of these things in little bits and pieces do play into your writing when you're, you know, relating to those areas. Mm -hmm. At least they should. Exactly. Plus, and your travels. You've done some really amazing places. Like, I'm very jealous. That's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah. I, I became a writer to travel. I didn't travel to write. But mm-hmm. yes, uh, they all all influenced me. Sometimes I would get a whole book out of a trip. Okay. Sometimes I would get a character or a critter or just a background. But, um, you know, I'm stuck on one planet, and yep. I tried to make it a point to see as much of it as I possibly can. Hmm. Where was your favorite place to travel to? Well, you you... To answer that question, you know, you'd have to say you go different places for different things. Yeah. Uh, for culture, I'd have to say Prague. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is the only city that wasn't bombed in World War One and World War Two. So you can start walking from the center of Prague and walk outward through the centuries, which is a wonderful experience, and Rome mm-hmm. also. Uh, but that's for culture. If you're talking about uh, adventure, I have to say Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And which is also one of the best places in the world to dive, go scuba dive. Amazing, yeah. 
And uh, so those, for different reasons, those are some of my favorite places. And for animals, uh, any major park in Africa that's well run, uh, particularly yeah. some of the lesser, uh, I mean, places like Kruger in South Africa and the Maasai Mara Serengeti area in Tanzania, Kenya are great. But if mm -hmm. you can get to some of the less visited parks, like Atosha in Namibia, um, you don't run into nearly as many tourists, and a lot of the visitors are local. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to see. It's a small planet, but a very interesting one. That is true. Yeah, one of my life goals is to do a motorcycle trip all the way down uh, South America and go to the most southerly point in Argentina. But, Wonderful. Uh, I, I hope you do it. You take the Pan American Highway, hope it's been repaired yeah. <laughs> in every place. But that's one reason, you, you know, that's a good reason to go on a bike. Exactly. As opposed to taking a car. Uh, I had a cousin who owns a plane and, and uh, he flew with his daughter. They flew all the way to the tip of South America, hopping from airport to airport. Oh, wow. So there's all kinds of ways to do it. My dream? Mm -hmm. Everybody has one. I have two. I'd like to, I'd like to lead an expedition into West Papua, because there have been old sightings of thylacines there, Tasmanian oh. tigers. Yeah. And everybody keeps looking for Tasmanian tigers in Tasmania, and I think you know, follow up some of these other sightings, which have never been pursued really, would mm -hmm. be fascinating to do. It's an extremely difficult place to get around. All of New Guinea is. And you need a proper expedition. The other thing would be to do the first crossing of South America from north to south by boat. Yeah, wow. If, like if you start in Venezuela. Hmm? Yeah, through, going through all the rivers, you mean? Yeah, if you start in Venezuela, if you start on the Orinoco and you go up the Orinoco mm -hmm. in the rainy season, there are places where these rivers kind of merge into lakes and swampy areas. And then you find a river, uh, no need for me to name one, that mm -hmm. goes and um, becomes a tributary of the Amazon, mm -hmm. and then you go from there from one other. You see, and you end up basically going from Venezuela to Uruguay by boat. Nobody's ever done that. Yeah, nobody's ever done that. Well, all it takes is time and sorry. Hopefully, you can still do it. You know, post uh, all it takes is time and money. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. all these things take, and the desire to want to do it, of course. Exactly. My my father, he went to Venezuela when I was quite young, and, you know, the photos he brought back, I was just so astonished, but he also brought back an unwelcome visitor with a, a bug in his leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the downside of going to places like that. Venezuela is a beautiful, beautiful place, mm -hmm. and Angel Falls is one of the one of the most spectacular places I've ever been. Uh, if you go with the, with the right outfit, you spend the night on the river. Because most of them, they just go up and take pictures of the falls from a distance, and then you go back yeah. down because it's a long trip. But if you go with go with a group that goes and stays overnight on the river, then you hike up to the base of the falls the next day. It's about a two, two-and-a-half-hour walk uphill through jungle, but it's not, you know, you don't hack away with machetes. And there's a pool at the base of the falls. And the water's very chilly, actually. And you <laughs> go swimming at the base of the world's highest waterfall, by the time the water hits the bottom, so much of it has evaporated away that it's, it's, you can swim right under it. And you look out over the jungle, and there's nobody else there except the few people in your little group. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those magical experiences in a magical place. 
Also, you get to see the place that inspired the, the Disney movie, the Pixar movie, up. Okay. Because I'm not actually watching <laughs> Sorry? I've not actually watched that one yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you, you know, if you do, you'll recognize pictures of Venezuela right away. There are these flat-top mountains called Tapuis, and uh, okay. that's what you see in Up, and that's what you see when you go upriver to see Angel Falls. Amazing. Hmm. Yeah, I actually purchased one of your books on Audible recently, your book Maori. Yes. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to listening to that when I'm working next week. Um, well, that's my only historical novel. Okay. I'd always, I like trying different things. I think as a creative person, uh, it can be financially remunerative to do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But I think you get stale very quickly, and the readers or the listeners or what, you know, whatever branch of art you're talking about, they get bored fairly quickly. And I yeah, get bored, exactly. and if I do that, all the time. And I had never written a historical novel. Mm-hmm. And I had been to New Zealand, and New Zealand is a fascinating, fascinating place. Absolutely, yeah. With a fascinating history that most Americans, most North Americans, know nothing about because it's not taught in schools. Australian and New Zealand history simply isn't taught. I was the first country to give women the right to vote. One of the great modern 19th century uh, gold rushes. Uh, The only people to ever fight the British Army to a standstill were the Maori. And it's just just an amazing place with an amazing physical place with an amazing cultural and social history. Mm -hmm. So that's what I chose to write my, uh, my historical novel about. That's amazing. I've done one historical novel. So I, I write, but then my problem is, is I write, I print about, and then I put them in my bookshelf, and that's the extent of what I ever do with them. So <laughs> I, You can't, can't do that. I always tell I people when I'm teaching writing, it doesn't do any good to write and not submit. Exactly. The worst thing yeah. that happens is you get rejection slips. Everybody gets rejection slips. And I mean mm-hmm. everybody. Nobody, nobody sells everything or sells on the first first try or the first thing that they write, you have to submit. Uh, It's the only way you're going to get any real gratification. Just writing for your own self, you might as well just daydream and not bother setting it down. So take those things off the shelf and put them in an envelope or send them electronically. Publishers love electronic, prefer electronic submissions now, which is easier all around. Mm -hmm. And see what happens. You never know. And don't be discouraged. Uh, one story that I can tell, I always tell, I tell your listeners is there was a guy who worked for the post office in Britain and he would tell stories to his kids. And sometimes the neighborhood kids would listen in on the stories. They'd go home, tell their parents about it. And the parents would come and tell the guy who worked for the post office, you really ought to write all these down, make a book at them. Mm-hmm. And he kind of demurred for a while and he finally did and he submitted it. And it ended up being rejected by every major publisher in the United Kingdom and the United States until it was finally picked up by, I believe, a small religious publishing house and then went on to become an enormous international bestseller for months on end. And the author was Richard Adams, and the book was Watership Down. <laughs> Which is an and amazing... the reason it kept getting rejected over and over again was because editors would write back and say, nobody wants to read a book about a bunch of talking rabbits. So... Yeah, and they're yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, indeed they are. So submit. Don't just yeah. sit on, you know, whatever you, 
if you have enough time, if you have enough wherewithal and enough drive to commit your ideas to, uh, used to say, paper, mm-hmm. you, you can certainly uh, put it in an envelope and mail it or send in an electronic file, and you might be surprised. Yeah, it's, uh, I definitely need to try. I mean, I've, I've done a couple of things in my life where I went, I don't know if I can manage to do this. And for quite a few years, I actually did stand-up comedy. And, you know, like the courage it took for me to get on stage, it was, you know, as I, as I described as finding my lady balls up. <laughs> and so that was yeah. something else. But, um, yeah, it's, it's on my I need to-do list for sure. Well, it's better to try and fail than never to have tried at all. Because the one person you don't want to be is the one who's sitting around in a rocking chair when they're 78 years old, looking back on their early life and saying, gee, I wish I'd tried that when I had the chance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, that's another thing I've been doing is my motorcycle trips. I always, I've been journaling them as well. Um, And in hopes of one day to have that as just another thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a gal come to me one time, and she had a very interesting story to tell. She had nearly been killed, murdered, by somebody who was trying to join a satanic cult, and that was supposedly what he had to do for his initiation, was kill somebody. (laughs) I I don't know where, I don't know, this was in Arizona, I don't know where she is now. He was serving, last I heard, a life sentence in Florence prison. Good. Um, And just before we finished, I, I said to her finally, I've given you all the help I can, and this is not really something I can afford to devote any more time to, but you should pursue it. And mm-hmm. that's when I found out that her grandfather had been a mining engineer who ran around with Pancho Villa. Oh. And I'm like, there's a book for you. Why don't you write that down? She's well, no, 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 that was just, you know, Grandpa's stories. and So mm-hmm. sometimes people will have a great book in them, and they won't, or a great story, and they won't even realize it because Absolutely. it's just part of their lives. Exactly. Hmm. And you've how many books have you written at this point? Uh, hundred and thirty something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Me, I'm like five. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's amazing. Hey, that's great. Most hmm. people never get one. Yeah. Well, one's a cookbook, so I don't really count it. Oh, you should, you should, because it's words, it's words that you've set down in an organized fashion, and that counts. It all counts. Because most people, most people, I get a lot of people will come up to me and say, look, I've got this great idea for a book. And sometimes they do. And I'll say, mm-hmm. well, go and write it. And they're like, well, I can't, or I don't have time, or I'll do it next year. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who have great ideas who never become writers, because yep. that's the difference between having a great idea and becoming a writer is actually setting it down in readable form. Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend writing in the course of a week? I write every day. Every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I'm composing music now, uh, orchestral music, so mm-hmm. sometimes I can alternate, but sometimes I just have to work on the music. But I do something along those lines. I either write in a book or a story or music every day. And people would, would ask me for years, and they'd say, well, how do you write so much? And I said, well, you just do something every day. You do one page a day. Mm-hmm. Anybody can write one page a day. Exactly. No matter how busy their schedule is or anything else. And at the end of the year, if you write one page a day, you have a 365-page book. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
but the trick is to not is to not take a vacation from it. It's not well. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm not going to do anything this week. I'll wait till next week. You'll never get anything done that way. Yeah, I have recently since you know the pandemic, I've been dedicating my Sundays to writing. So I've I'm almost finished my my next book. So that that's one that I'm hoping to to pass into someone's hands and go. All right, I'm finally going to do it. Commit to being rejected. <laughs> Good. People will always look at your book, not so much because they think you're, you, you know, you're a great writer because you're so-and-so, but because mm -hmm. they're terrified that some other publisher will find it and end up with a bestseller or That's a popular true. book. It's fear that drives all of these, and it's fear that drives the movie industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, the worst thing is to pass on a story like Star Wars being an excellent example. Everybody knows that history. Mm -hmm. And have somebody else take it and make a, a successful film out of it. Exactly. So your stuff will get looked at. may not get looked at by the main editor, but somebody will read it. And generally, if you're a good writer, uh, somebody who can you know, write a, a, a saleable story, an editor or a reader will, will know it right away. Now, I mentioned an exception to that with the Adams book. Yeah. But most of the stuff that is submitted and read... People can tell right away. Um, I can tell right away. If somebody sends me, say, a short story, I edited a couple of anthologies, I can mm -hmm. tell by the end of the first page whether or not this person can write. I can't tell if it's a good story or not at that point, but I can tell whether or not they can write. And people who do this for a living, they know right away. Exactly. So yeah. if you get you know, 30 rejection letters that say, try something else for a living, you might want to consider <laughs> well, I do have a full-time job, so. <laughs> okay. But if you get a letter back, and particularly not a printed rejection form letter, if somebody yeah. writes back and says, well, this, you know, this has potential, but it's not quite right for us, mm -hmm. or we think, you know, you, you write well, but um, maybe some changes in this story and resubmit it later. If you start getting feedback like that, professional mm -hmm. feedback, then you definitely want to pursue it. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So let's talk about your your music that you're composing. Uh, I grew up with classical music. I didn't get involved yeah. with uh, other genres until later in life. My wife, Joanne, introduced me to rock and heavy metal. Oh, really? So now, <laughs> yes, so now my... Uh, sorry, go ahead. I, I didn't realize it was her that introduced it. That's, a, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you hear popular music on the radio. It's, it blares all over the place. Even yeah. back in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up, you couldn't escape it. It just didn't really appeal to me. Yeah. It was kind of like the white bread version of music. Mm -hmm. And I would, I'd grown up again with classical music. My mother played the piano. And that's what I loved to listen to, and that's what I bought when I started buying records. And then suddenly, you know, I met this beautiful woman, and she said, well, we need to go to some concerts. And I'm like, I don't want to go, you know, those concerts. Who's ZZ Top, anyway, and this Roy Orbison guy? And uh, I love Roy Orbison. <laughs> you know, Led Zeppelin and all. Who are these people? And we went to a bunch of concerts, and I started getting more and more interested. And then I discovered metal. And I like mm -hmm. the same things about metal that I like about classical. Mm -hmm. uh, and... So I got more and more interested in it. I'd always wanted to write music for orchestra. 
but I couldn't play an instrument. I had musical, no musical education. So that kind of complicates things. And time went by, and I would start to look at music software, and I thought, I don't have time to learn this. And mm-hmm. I don't know what I'd be doing anyway, and I don't want a MIDI keyboard. And, and it went on and on and on and on. And then uh, in April of this past year, I found a, a free online software called MuseScore. Okay. And it was fairly straightforward. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll throw some notes up there on some staves and see what it sounds like. Because that was the key for me. That was the breakthrough for me. I could actually hear what I, wanted, what I was hearing in my head. If I was hearing something for oboe in my head, I could put it down on the screen and click on it with the mouse and hear an oboe play that note. That made an enormous difference for me. And so yeah. I just started playing around, and I wrote some sort of short pieces. And subsequent to that, I've written three symphonies, and I'm currently working on a symphonic poem. And I'm Amazing. just having a great old time and learning as I go, obviously. Yeah. Oh, I would love to check that out. There's, I've definitely had a few dreams where I've conducted whole orchestras, and I wake up and I go, oh, what was that piece of music again? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, if, if you provide me with a, a suitable email, I'll send you a symphony. Maybe one of these, yeah. Maybe one of these days there'll be some live performances. Who knows? Because a nice thing about the software is about any software, not just the one I happen to use, is that mm-hmm. you can print out parts. Yeah. So send it send it to somebody who wants to play it in performance, and they can just run it all through a computer. And you know, here are your trumpet parts, and here are your trombone parts, and that's a great way to do it. That's amazing. But yeah, I'm really having a, a wonderful time with it, and people that I've sent it to seem to like the stuff, and including some professional musicians. And maybe when people get back to live performances, um, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. It would, would you be think really about? Nice to... Yeah. No, would you think about um, doing music for your books? Well, no. I well, I did think about that sort of. But there's really no way to get it in the hands of people. You'd have to, you'd have to sell like a flash drive along, <laughs> along with the uh, the book itself, or people could download it. Of course, mm-hmm. actually, my most recent book to come out is a fantasy novel called Madringa, and that's what the symphonic poem is. It's a an interpretation of the same storyline, only in in music for orchestra. Okay. So if people buy the book and like the book, maybe one day they'll be able to access the symphonic poem and hear hear it in music form anyway. Yeah. You could almost always do it with um, like an audible narration as well, have it playing in the background. Oh, you're talking about scoring it. Yes, you yeah. could do it that way. Could yeah. do it that way. But nobody has offered to, to do that, and it requires additional work on the part mm-hmm. of the audiobook publisher. But it certainly could be done that way, especially if uh, if I didn't go all out with a full orchestra, let's say, and you're just a little violin here and a little harp here. That's mm-hmm. easy, but nobody has come back with me, come back to me and said, let's try that. But the option is there. Certainly could be done. I think it should be a thing. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of these days, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. And so... Was it your wife that also led you into um, Nightwish, or was that something you discovered yourself? No, thank goodness for the Internet, or I never would have heard of symphonic metal or Northern European metal or any of this. Nightwish, of course, is a Finnish 
symphonic metal band that's been around since the early 90s, mm-hmm. and they're on their third lead singer, an astonishing creature named Flor Janssen, who's actually Dutch, who is a little bit over six feet tall and performs in four-inch heels, so she's, she's quite a presence on stage. Absolutely. And one, yeah. of, her, one of her nicknames is uh, the Swiss Army Knife of Singing, because she can sing pretty much anything. Hmm. But this is a group, this is like an all-star team, this band. I, I hesitate to even refer to them as a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody is an all-star at their position. None of them are kids. They've been doing this for a long time. Everybody knows their role. They know what to do. And the result is some pretty astonishing music. So for anybody who hasn't heard of Nightwish or heard Nightwish, I recommend they go to YouTube and uh, start looking at some of their music and particularly live performances. Mm-hmm. The studio stuff is great, but there's something about a live performance that brings out the best in any performer, and I think that's especially true of Nightwish. Absolutely. You know, there, there's a big problem in Finland, I don't know if you know this fact, where a lot of death metal bands, they go out and they take, you know, photos in the woods for their new album covers, and then they get lost, and they have to be rescued. <laughs> No, I didn't know that. That doesn't point to the intelligence of the band in question. Uh, I mean, we have GPS today, for crying out loud. Yeah, exactly. But I can just see, I can just see some group like, say, Dimmu Borgir or uh, uh, who else? Uh, I'm trying to think. We're in Sweden, Sabaton. You know, the drummer for Sabaton is married to Flor Jansson, so everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody in Northern European metal, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Flor Jansen used to apparently room with Simone Simons, who's the lead singer for Epica, which is another great band. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows everybody and works together, and that's great. Uh, the idea of any of them getting lost in the woods, uh, that's pretty funny what you're saying, actually. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could see that in northern Finland. Not so much in Sweden, but certainly yeah. in Finland. It's just fun. You wander over the Russian border, that would be fun. You get a song out of that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'd love to go to Finland. They have wonderful concerts there in places yeah. like Tampere and uh, I can't pronounce all the names. I haven't practiced my Finnish here lately. Don't worry. But, Not many people can uh, say them. <laughs> right. Um, but I could if I wanted to. Uh, I love languages too. That's another thing I enjoy playing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to see the band one day. Actually, I actually had a reservation to go see them in Los Angeles last year, but of course everything was canceled for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they have a virtual concert coming up. Oh, awesome! Actually, yeah, I think that. it's twenty-five, twenty-five bucks or twenty-five euros, and uh, but you know, maybe one day, again, something else to do. You don't want to, you don't want to sit down and say, "Well, I've done everything there is to do," <laughs> because then you start having unpleasant thoughts. And there's still a lot of places I'd like to go, and music I'd like to write, and books I'd like to write, and mm-hmm. certainly concerts I'd like to go to. I was absolutely. supposed to see The Who last year also. Do you know The Who? H-U? Oh, absolutely. Okay, well, I don't know who I'm talking to here. I don't know what you, what you don't. They just put out a cover of Metallica's Sad But True Yeah. that is absolutely killer. Yeah. I mean, Mongolian throat singing combined with Metallica, it's just it's what everybody wanted it to be in the first place, if the guys in Metallica will excuse me. <laughs> it's wonderful. Wonderful! Another great group that people should uh, should look up and listen to. Yeah, well, it's like I like Apostolistica, and they do um, Metallica in in electric cello, yeah. which is just stunning. I I yeah, love it so much. Yeah. 
Excellent, excellent group. There's just so much music out there that never makes it, never makes it onto radio in the United States. Yeah. It's just Agreed. not played here because the corporations that control uh, what music is played here, they're interested in the bottom line. They don't see any benefit in promoting bands like this. Uh, and a whole, a whole range of popular music, we're not talk, even talking about classical music now, but popular music, is simply not available or lost to young American listeners. And that's changing thanks primarily to YouTube. Yeah. Because if yeah. you're a rapper and you want to be exposed uh, to a group like Sonata Artica, for example, the only place you're going to find that is on YouTube. And exactly. it's great. And that's so that YouTube is changing the music scene in the United States, I think, but slowly. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, it makes me want to go listen to Apocalypse right now and all the other bands <laughs> I can pick up. <laughs> yeah, I had a, a chance to. Uh, so my father, he's the president of a music festival here known as Blues Fest in, in, in Canada. And uh, it got canceled uh, like m- most other things this past year too. But what right. they did is they, they really featured, they had kind of a smaller version where everyone came in their cars instead of the usual 30,000 people that they would get. So it was like, you know, 100, 200 people and they brought in local local artists. So they did theme nights of like country music, native music. And it was, it was really great for just seeing Canadian music at that point and not just some of the, the big bands that tour around, you know, that you, often you do get to see, but at the same time, it's just like, well, here's something that is so new and so different for, you know, the average person to be able to listen to native music on stage. Right. There was a wonderful Canadian classical composer. He didn't write a whole lot. His name was, if I remember correctly, Claude Champagne. And uh, you should look him up. Mm, if you're definitely. interested in Canadian music. Have for you sure. heard of Nano War of Steel? I yes, I have. <laughs> oh well, you. I don't have to tell you anything anymore. Did you know that the bass player is? Sorry, I was going to say, but explain to the listeners. Okay, Nano War of Steel is an Italian metal parody band, which actually comes up with great music and hysterically funny videos and lyrics that are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. And their bass player is a highly respected and well noted astrophysicist. And it is an unusual group, to say the least. And uh, they have a recent song called Val Hallelujah, and everybody should watch that and because it will make them feel better about the current situation on the planet. Yeah, exactly. So Val Hallelujah by Nano War of Steel. Have you ever listened to Christopher Lee's music? Not the actor. You should check it out. He's kind of in a sort of death metal like album that he did no but i will on your recommendation and i'll throw another one back at you have you ever heard of diana and kudinova no i have not she is a 17 year old russian dramatic contralto okay which is rare enough in female singers but she has an extraordinary life story plenty of videos again available online and mm-hmm. one of the most unusual voices that I've heard since Ima Sumac. Uh, very definitely something everybody should listen to. Mm-hmm. Again, live performances for all of these groups and all of these people, except 
where there is only a, a studio version or a music video available. But otherwise, you want live performances for everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have I answered all of your questions satisfactorily? I think so. Um, I did want to. <laughs> I did want to talk just really quickly about your house. Um, there was a note in the oh. back of Splinters of the Mind's Eye that it was built from uh, reclaimed bricks from a yes. what was it? Uh, a, a Gold Rush Miners Hotel brothel. Yes, which is amazing. Called the Rex Arms. <laughs> called the Rex Arms. Uh, the house actually has the original red light from the place out in the back of the house, but we're so isolated that nobody can find it anyway, so it's not an issue. <laughs> and our line, of course, to visitors is, if our walls could talk, they would really have a lot to say. <laughs> That's really funny. It, it's not a huge house. It's not a mansion or anything like that. It's just a very nice one-story ranch house. Mm -hmm. uh, but unusual building materials, and uh, we're... We're very happy. We've been here 40 years in the same house. Mm -hmm. And I have a separate building, which is my studio, and that's where I work. And I uh, hope to continue to do so for some time to come. Well, I think that's just amazing that you got these reclaimed bricks. There was um, a project I heard of recently, and I think it was Louisiana, where uh, they were tearing down these structures, and the builders were just deeming you know, these bricks as they're, they're garbage. But it turns out they were slave-made. And, you know, the historical society stepped in and saying that, like, the importance of keeping these and not just destroying them. So they, you know, brought them museums and things like that. So I, I think Absolutely. it's just really amazing to, you know, continue history because it's... Absolutely. It's I'm a big believer in preserving, in preserving yeah. whatever we can. We didn't build the house, by the way. The house was built in 1957. Okay. By another family. And uh, we, we were the third owners, actually. Like, we've been here longer than uh, the original owners were. But we didn't build it. We weren't here, and we weren't here in 1956 when the Rex Arms was torn down and architecturally salvaged. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back to uh, the symphonic poem I'm working on. I mm -hmm. wish there was a way to play it so you could hear some of it. But we tried that once on another podcast, and it <laughs> sounded uh, sounded sort of like it was being played by a, an orchestra composed of nothing but kazoo's. Yeah. And so we're we're not going to do that, but uh, maybe people have a chance to hear hear yeah. some of the music another way. If yeah. they go, actually, uh, one of the earliest pieces I wrote is a symphonic suite, where each of the six individual pieces, very short, about two minutes each, are musical impressions of the individual members of Nightwish. Okay. And they can go to my my website on Facebook, my Facebook site, and find find the music there so there's at least one example that people can listen to bearing in mind that it's just you know synth instruments on an mp3 off free software this is not the mm -hmm. vnfl harmonic they're going to be listening to but yeah. you get the idea of the sort of thing i'm trying to do yeah have do you have a youtube channel started for your music no no okay. no 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 <laughs> <laughs> um and there's really no way to post it to youtube unless you have visual accompaniment so you take a still shot, and then you can put, this is what a yeah. lot of music, even classical music on YouTube is, and then you can attach the music to it. But exactly. it would be very complicated for me to try to put it up on my website, for example. Mm -hmm. So, But people can go and, you know, to Facebook page and at least find the Nightwish Suite. Uh, I think I've gotten better since then, but uh, <laughs> everybody has to start somewhere. Yeah, well, we'll definitely share the link. So. Okey-doke.
Great. Well, this has been amazing having you on, and I'm glad we got to talk about Star Wars and and your amazing travels and your music, and and hopefully the listeners will get some, you know, exciting Finnish culture into their lives as well. <laughs> oh well, I enjoyed it too. So. Uh, everybody have a good afternoon, good evening, uh, good morning, depending on where you are on the planet. <laughs> and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Definitely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're now joined for the second half of the discussion of Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And Cole has returned. <laughs> I'm back. But add weather be cursed. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Um, so you just heard the the amazing interview with Alan Dean Foster, and it was such a privilege to be able to speak with him. He honestly is just such a wonderful man. And I hope the listeners check out all the music that he talked about. I'll post some links about it and make sure you check out his blog um, and his other materials. So, And continuing on, so Splinter of the Mind's Eye, published in 1978 by Alan Dean Foster, um, so this is the first EU book. And so basically, you know, we were talking with Alan. He was like the grand daddy, the, you know, of of legends, which is really, it was a great experience. But the, the book itself, so it opens to ABY with Luke meditating in his X-Wing. And he's he kind of has this moment where he's discussing how beautiful the universe is and you know, the destructiveness and the disease he sees of, you know, his own parents having been killed. And he has this neat moment where he's kind of pondering about Ben and whether or not he may be be dead, because he's not quite sure. Mm -hmm. Mm. Still hears his voice occasionally. Exactly. I liked that we find out that Luke, um, you know, he didn't really want to be given the title of like General Skywalker. And he, you know, by the Alliance. And he just said, mm -hmm. like, I don't want a title. Like, and everyone's just like, oh, wow, he's really modest. What a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, like he just didn't want the responsibility. 
That too. Yeah, exactly. So while he's flying in space, they're they're heading to the fourth planet in the known as Circus Four. Bit of a mouthful there. And he's flying alongside a Y-wing, which has Leia and C-3PO in it. And there's kind of like this little moment where he's talking about like the emotions that he feels when he looks over at her and how they boil within him. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some stuff you definitely know. It's like, oh, this was written before they knew that they were going to be brother and sister. Exactly. So like, yeah, as long as you can kind of get past that throughout the book, I think it works well as the story. <laughs> Thankfully, like nothing like really specific or like direct happens with that, but it's definitely like undertones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just more like you know a longing look here and there. Mm-hmm. So the pair are officially emissaries in a mission where they're they're heading from um, basically to encourage this uh, rebel government to you know go up against the Imperials and. What happens immediately is Leia's ship suddenly breaks down. You know, whether it's just shoddy workmanship or it's just convenience, but they have to go and land on another planet in the same system, which it turns out is Mimban. And of course, you know, listeners, we do know where Mimban came from, where we see it in the solo film, which is pretty neat that, you know, they tied in all those characters again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when they they first kind of go into the atmosphere, they 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 realize that you know they can't all their ship instruments suddenly are just not working, and Luke can't he loses track of Leia, and they all crash down. Uh, there's this great moment where he, he says "stang," which obviously you know we do see as like a common swear word later on. So I like that the beginning that was- the beginning of the Star Wars swear words exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like having one staying of a time getting them to the surface again, you know. So, yeah, they both crash, but they crash up separately. And, you know, at that point, Luke just kind of has to rely on where he thinks Leia had crash landed. And Leia does the smart thing and stays with her ship, knowing that Luke is probably going to go try to find her. I like so. how 3PO was complaining about, you know, feeling space sick. it's like you're a droid come on man yeah exactly but like i also liked when how you know luke feels that there's like a stirring within the force and he feels that something is um interesting about this world and what Mm -hmm. is really cool is like it's it's kind of very it reminds me of yavin in some sense where there's temples everywhere and there's Mm -hmm. just it's very strong with the force with the it being one of the places where the kyber crystal, or this is the original kyber crystal location. Yeah, well. the planet's kind of like a cross between Dagobah and Yavin. It's like a swampy, temple-infested, <laughs> and also imperial-infested, as we find out. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, at nighttime, they make a fire after they, you know, they find each other, and they, they sleep together. The droids, you know, they protect them. Um, so once they head out the next day, Oh, oh, there was a moment where he kind of felt like he was going to kiss her there, mm-hmm. but then refrains, thankfully. <laughs> it's like, I would never take advantage of her like that. Exactly. It's like, it's like uh, good move, uh, good move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they head out the next morning on, they're eating like cube rations. So, you know, they're getting kind of hungry and they eventually come up to this town where it's just, it's very difficult to locate other cities because it's such a jungle almost like temperate jungle. And they basically just walk into this wall. 
and discover that, you know, oh, whoops, there's a town here. <laughs> and that's when they come across a, like this imperial compound, which is for miners. And of course, they're, they're energy miners. So are they mining? They're not mining kyber crystals. They're mining other materials, right? I think so. It seems like the kyber crystal, as they describe it in this book, is like a singular thing okay. rather than like, you know, just a crystal that you could like, like it is on like Ilum or something. So yeah. I don't, they, they just say energy mining. They don't really go into specifics of it. So okay. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, they figure that since they're energy miners, the, um, the big generators that are, were causing the atmospheric problems, and that was the cause of why their ship instruments lost mm. all power and, you know, the other reason of their crash. So they're basically stuck on this world with no ships and surrounded by Imperials. And, you know, they're like, how, do, how are we going to get off? I like how they quickly come up with a plan to, like, hide the droids steal clothes but then they go really like bold with their idea of let's walk into a pub <laughs> yeah pretty bold pretty bold it is like leia's obviously super famous at this point in the story and luke you know well he's getting there but yeah they they go in and they have to mingle to get food i love how he's like i have to correct you on how you walk you walk too much like a princess mm-hmm and like tussles her hair and like tries to put mud on her face and she's like don't even think of it <laughs> you gotta slouch more and <laughs> exactly like a miner is not gonna walk like a regal person who just had her hair done so yeah and i like so they go into the tavern and it's just it smells like narcotics as soon as they walk in and luke's luke's just like oh my gosh like i cannot handle this and like coughing and she's like well even i can handle this so whatever <laughs> such a farm boy exactly uh so they order some steaks and some um uterwergs which is like vegetables and you know recommended by the the bartender there and there's this really horrible scene with these creatures known as the greenies if, if you want to explain that cole yeah the, it seems like they're the natives of this planet or at least one of the natives and the imperials just treat them like or you just all the people there just treat them like trash and like forces them to yeah. literally lick their boots for alcohol yeah <laughs> it's some, pretty pretty bad <laughs> yeah severe alcohol problems on this planet mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, yeah and, and luke wants to interfere and then leia's like well we can't obviously low profile yeah and th- then the server, he suddenly gets, you know, suspicious about these this pair that's, you know, showed up out of nowhere because obviously they look strangers. And they, he kind of, you know, asks about Leia, like, look how clean your hands are, basically. You know, and then Luke yeah. says, oh, well, uh, she's my, what, what does he identify, like a slave or just... Like a servant girl or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know I if he's a slave, her. but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, I just bought her, it cost all my savings. And there's this crazy moment where um, he slaps her across the face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and, you know, it just kind of to show that she is the servant slash to confuse everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was, you know, it shocked her, 
enough that she doesn't say anything for like a good two minutes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the the old woman who then approaches. Hala. Yeah, she comes up because she sense she tells she can tell that they're like not from around there. And she apparently is a force sensitive herself and senses that Luke is strong in the force. Mm-hmm. And so she wants his help in locating the Kyber crystal and mm-hmm. spelled K A I B U R R instead of the K Y B E R that we're used to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she has a fragment of it. And as soon as Luke touches it, it like amplifies his force powers for a moment. Mm hmm. Yeah, and she's she's pretty mean to Leia in some moments, being like, you know, mm-hmm. be quiet, pretty. Uh, and then like, oh, you can't touch it. Only he can touch it. Do you yeah. think she was a Jedi? That seems to be the implication, or, you know, some remnant of the old Jedi Order, or uh, it's unclear, but she definitely, like, says some yeah. kind of training. Yeah, like yeah, they never really say within the story that if she is or is not. Mm-hmm. So she does ask them, you know, like where did you guys come from? And then immediately she figures out that you know you guys must be who you're not saying you are, and uh, and then they suddenly distrust her, which is crazy. Well, and she does like she does a demonstration where she like moves the salt shaker. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it is. It's like, mm, okay, yeah. okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, well, we can kind of trust you. But, you know, Vader could do that too. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're like, okay, well, you know, we, we came here by accident. We crashed. Our ships are way off in the jungle. Um, and we need to get off world. And she's like, well, I'll help you. But you have to help me. Mm-hmm. Which is essentially help her locate the rest of the slither of the kyber crystal that she has. So, and she got it from this greenie who had she traded it for for like a flagon of ale, yeah, for alcohol is, again. Yeah, again alcohol, um, which is really sad. But this greenie found it in the temple of Pomogemma, which is just one of the many temples on the on the world, and basically a local deity who they kind of say is like the god of the kyber crystal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she gives it to Luke as well, which is interesting, and says, you know, we must go without delay, and they they pay and they leave, and this seems crazy if you want to explain oh, what happened. It's, it's so weird. Like they, They're leaving the, like, tavern, and, like, Leia like pushes Luke off the porch and he falls in the mud, but he pulls her in too. Mm-hmm. And then they start like wrestling in the mud <laughs> and it draws attention from the crowd. They're like, why is this servant girl fighting her master or whatever and fighting against the rules. So we better break him up. Otherwise there's going to be trouble here. And mm-hmm. there's trouble anyway. Yeah. And it's like five men who are like, we have to do a citizen's arrest. Mm-hmm. But then suddenly they're all like major weapons. Yeah. Despite the whole no fighting ban on this world. Yeah. They have like one guy has like blades coming out of his wrists and his boots. And it's like, it's like, what the heck? Where did this come from? Yeah, exactly. So, which is crazy. The fight's just crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like one guy, um, he like grabs Leia from behind and then she just basically beats the 
crap out of that guy. (laughs) (laughs) But then, like, the rest of the guys go up against Luke, and he takes out his lightsaber and chops one of the guy's hands off. Yep. Yep. Lose a hand to the Star Wars movie. It is. It definitely is. It's the beginning of that. But what's crazy is like the guys are like, well, we're just going to keep fighting him despite that guy's hand getting chopped off and probably never seeing this technology before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So immediately, obviously, that goes to, you know, hell in a handbasket and troopers approach. They all get arrested. Luke and Leia have no ID tag, so they're in big trouble. I like that. Um, when Leia's victim comes to after she pummels him, um, she kicks him again, and the, the guards are like, "There's no need for that." It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, too funny. She, she's something else in this book. I really, I w- that's something we discussed. I kind of said, like, you know, is this something that you saw from Carrie, or is it you kind of went for this princess attitude? And it was more along the lines of like a princess attitude. But I just felt it was, it was more like Carrie than anything. <laughs> this character. So, so they they get marched through the town and they're heading to the ziggurat, which is one of the temples that has been converted into kind of the barracks for the local, you know, head honcho. And when they get there, um, you know, they have to talk with the captain supervisor, Grammel, who everyone is kind of terrified of this guy. Mm-hmm. So. And like even Hala had warned them about going up against him, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Uh oh, it's this guy." <laughs> Captain Supervisor is what? It, that's an interesting title. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it's another kind of like formal titles. It almost sounds like. So when they they meet with this man, and so like the seven prisoners are ushered in, and he's got like furs and decorations, and you know he seems to be a little posh or mm-hmm. trying kind of posh, and. Immediately, the miners are like, oh, man, we're, we're in big trouble. And one guy kind of gets mouthy with, with Grammel, and the, he gets basically his eye bludgeoned out by Grammel mm-hmm. for, you know, saying, I don't believe your orders are correct. And oh, mm-hmm. it's pretty gross. Yeah. So, but it but does then, seem like they're just, the prisoners are just going to get like, like, a, like a pay docking, essentially, though. Yeah. So it's like, so that's, it's like not that bad, I guess, but... Yeah. Well, some then they do eventually get put into jail, but mm-hmm. um, and then Leia, you know, she's being very sassy here and says like, "Your manners are probably ma- matched only by your incompetence." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and they're all like, "Ooh," <laughs> as she's insulting him. <laughs> but, you know, and then of course he's going, "You know, where's your ID?" And they're like, "Oh, well." probably somewhere in the mud back there somebody probably lost it it you know and and then he's just like you know there's no thieves in this world like no one would just pick it up and keep it to themselves so obviously you're you're lying lying but yeah so it's pretty intense that whole scene um Mm -hmm. after the guy gets his eye basically smushed and they get taken away um luke is is kind of going okay well what can we do in this moment they have to come up with a story and i like what they said as you know as to their other characters like sure we're we're not actually imperials yeah they're criminals on the run from Tarkarpus 4 yeah and like hey we were 
we got in trouble with the wrong people and they were going to execute us. So we stole a ship and ran and then crash landed here. Mm-hmm. So don't kill us, please. Yeah. Which explains why the sensors never, you know, sh- picked up their ships from landing. So just mm-hmm. tiny little ships. So, so he's like, I believe you, but I don't believe you, but I mostly believe you, but you have to prove something to me. And which is, they had been seen taking this Kyber crystal or, at least holding the kyber crystal. And of course Luke's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, I think you do. And they start beating Leia until Luke finally like gives in and gives in the box, which is, you know, still unlocked, thankfully to them. Mm-hmm. So and it has like this, you know, glowing red glow, which is natural. And he's like, well, you know, it, it was like that when I swiped it. <laughs> so, and you know and grandma he obviously doesn't really know what he's holding on to at this point but he's just like okay well I'm keeping this and I'm putting you guys in the maximum secure holding pen after like they beat Leia some more which is unfortunate yeah <laughs> so grandma does have some kind of intelligence where he he decides to to call his superiors and he calls the governor bin Asada on Jindin. Um, and that, that's actually, is a world that's mentioned in quite a few other books. So it's in um, the, the Jedi, new Jedi order. Uh, it's in legacy of the force and exile and fury. And um, even where Tendrano arms is located. Oh, interesting. I, did, I didn't yeah. remember that. That's fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I also liked how Luke said, you know, you know, we were kind of thinking that to get away, we would contact the rebels and they would help us out. Which obviously to Grandma, you know, he's suspicious that they were very confident in the ability to be able to c- contact the rebels. So mm-hmm. red flags there. Um, the governor, when he calls them, is very annoyed. You know, he's just like, I'm really busy because the Senate was just dissolved and he's, he's just doing too much work. <laughs> <laughs> Like suddenly my paperwork just got doubled because the Senate's gone. (laughs) Exactly. Like I love that reference to Tarkin. You know, all the local you know governors will take care of all that kind of stuff. Direct control. (laughs) So, yeah, and then of course you know he shows him the crystal, and you know Governor Assad is like, oh, okay. Um, Who is this this couple that you have? And sees the visualization visualization of Leia, and immediately is like, "You need to not hurt these people, and I'm coming." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and now now uh, Grandma's like, "Okay, well, why are they so important?" And of course, he gets cut off and ends the hollow trans. You know. So talk about what happens when they're put in the the secure holding pen. Yeah, they're put in with a pair of Yuzum prisoners, and it's it's a very similar sequence to um, whatever Han was put in the holding with Chewie, honestly. Yeah. And honestly, I almost feel like the, the whole thing on Mimban with that is in reference to this, because of how Absolutely. similar it is with like Luke knowing how to speak the language and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is great, you know, and mm-hmm. like this species is, it's very, they say it's like a distant relative to the Wookiee as well. Mm-hmm. 
you know and i love that moment where like the guards walk away and they're like ha 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 they'll discover what's in the cell soon enough yeah exactly just like it's like it's like oh you're you're killing them too slowly kill them faster exactly (laughs) but you know when yeah luke's talking to them and they decide that all prisoners are allies but then they quickly realize that the two yasms are drunk <laughs> and lots of alcohol in this book. Lots of alcohol. Tons of alcohol in this book. Like, I'm, yeah, um, which is really funny. So apparently, they have really long hangovers. So like, they've been drunk for a while. <laughs> uh, so basically, they were two empo- frustrated employees who decided that you know they weren't getting treated well, so they just started breaking things. And Hin and Key were quickly arrested and put into this prison cell so leia i like how upset she is for her part in the arrest you know for acting foolish and mud mm-hmm. wrestling in the street so it, it does show that you know she has some maturity coming in there and how she says to luke you know you're such a good man so a little bit of like oh flirtation there <laughs> So Grammel returns, very happy to see that they've not been eaten by the Yuzum. <laughs> oh, that could have been bad. Yeah. But then he's like, you know what? I'm just going to leave you in here. Obviously, you guys are getting along. Oh, Which seems is- like everything's fine here. We'll just yeah. go now. Yeah. And then mentions that, you know, the Imperials are coming. And quickly, Leia is like, what do you mean a governor Imperial is coming? And she just kind of has like a panic attack. So, you know, like, it was definitely, like, a reflection back to that moment where she had been tortured on the Death Star. And, mm-hmm. like, it was, like, it wasn't just, like, a little, ooh, like, she was full-on panic attacking. And to the point where they have to kind of just, like, smack her out of her her moment. Yeah, she went through uh, quite a ordeal there. We don't really get to see much of it in the movie, but it's definitely implied to be real bad. Yeah, I can imagine. So Grammel, you know, he's still begging them to like say, "Tell me who you are," which of course they refuse. Uh, Key attempts to grab Grammel through the bars and gets stun blasted. So then uh, Hin like spits on him. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice description of when he does it. Like the sound, I'm like, ah, nice. <laughs> so Grammel's like, "Whatever, I'm leaving you guys in here." Um, Suddenly, like, food is brought in, which, of course, is just a bad move on their part. They should have just left them alone and not given them food because a tray will be part of their way of how they escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I like when suddenly, like, they hear a sound at the wim- window and they're way up on, like, this ledge. And suddenly they realize Hala had kind of skirted the edge of the structure found them inside and just said, you know, I, I'm, I came for the crystal, but obviously they lost it to Grammel, so she's pretty upset about that. And she instructs Luke, well, she starts levitating the food tray out of the cell to basically to hit the controls that had locked them in, but she, you know, she gets... Button. <laughs> yeah, so she gets Luke to help her. So they, you know, they struggle and, and he hears Ben's voice for like to relax and remember. So I thought that was a really nice moment. Mm-hmm. 
And then the so the tray goes down the corridor, hits the controls, they're escaping. I like that they, you know, put the tray back and shut it again, thinking, you know, let's give them something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> How did they get out of here? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So she had told them to go meet them at the speeder garage, which is by the maintenance yard. And like she gave them directions. So their plan now is we got to get out of here. But the Usums are like, let's have some fun. (laughs) (laughs) Drunk rampage. Here we go. Oh, yeah. They just they were blasting everyone in sight. So (laughs) (laughs) like they burst into the communication center and just blast everything. Like just, yeah. No one survives in their path. Somehow, though, um, one of them gave Luke back the lightsaber. So I thought that was pretty interesting. One of the troopers decided to keep the lightsaber to himself mm-hmm. instead of handing it over to like to his superior. Just, yeah, and of course, Graham was super annoyed at this point. You know, I like it. Kind of, <laughs> What the double moons is going on? I thought that was a good. Yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of the um, the main imperial guy from the uh, IG eighty eight story. Oh yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he yeah. kind of reminds me of him with like, like everything just keeps going wrong, and he gets yeah. more, more and more panicked about it. It's similar name, Imperial Supervisor Gurdon. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah, mm-hmm. frustrated, um, outnumbered for sure. So the four escapees, this is a crazy scene where they're, they, they finally see the exit, but it's flanked by guards. So Hin and Key, they decide to storm the desk um, with, and they like stun the guards. Key dismembers one, um, <laughs> dis- but destroys the desk, which I, was it? Okay, so this is where I was confused. When he destroys the desk, is it now not allowing them to open the doors? Mm, I don't I don't remember the specifics. Okay. Like, like destroy the controls or something, maybe? Yeah. yeah. I thought that's what it meant. Yeah. So Luke shoots mm-hmm. one of the other ones. Um, and then they they hurl three canisters as Grammel and his troopers start, you know, showing up of explosions. Uh, explosives, sorry. <clears throat> and basically blow apart the building. And they escape into the trees. <laughs> Just making yeah. a mess of everything. Yeah, so very successful escape. They they do find Hala and the droids at the maintenance yard, and R2 got the transport started, thankfully, because, you know, you always need R2 to save the day. Mm-hmm. And so these, they're like swamp crawlers. They still have wheels, so, you know, it's kind of older technology, um, which is pretty interesting. So they, they drive off 30 minutes later, um, they have basically stores and foods in the ship for, or the tr- the crawler for, you know, several weeks. Mm-hmm. And her plan now is we have to go get this kyber crystal. Oh, I forgot. Did they did successfully get that crystal from from Grammel, or did they not? I didn't think they did, but I'm not because I don't think they ever actually like encountered Grammel directly when they, after yeah. they blew the building up. So I think Grandma still has the splinter, I think. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so Hala, she had a map that was kind of sketched out by one of the greenies to this specific temple. And she was like, it's like a week to 10 days to get there. <laughs> you know, like no real accurate uh, assumption there. It's, it's out there that direction, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I do like that Grandma survived. Um, he had to get his arm reattached from that explosion. <laughs> brutal. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. And like his hearing's all messed up now as well. There was one kind of reprise in this in this doctor female character who, you know, she who had lost her lover forty years ago and decided to become a doctor for the Imperials just to keep her basically busy from depression. But so grandma had wanted to execute all the guards who were in his mind responsible for the escape, but she kind of convinced him that you're going to need every trooper to help you search for these guys. Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, yeah, I I can see how you're right. Mm -hmm. So So maybe we succeed. They'll he'll then, you know, lenient leniency later on. Exactly. Not that it's mattering probably, but Mm -hmm. so seven days later, they're still traveling through the jungle um and luke's kind of going you know it's been a week and she's like or 10 days (laughs) (laughs) i feel like a lot of time actually passes over the like because at the beginning even after they crash land before they find the town it says they travel for like several days at some point yeah so it's like there's a lot of time that actually travels like passes it's kind of like lord of the rings like it's like lots of just traveling that's nondescript and not really important (laughs) exactly yeah so, and he does feel like a, a kind of stirring in the force. Um, and they do kind of question how, like, you know, why not join the rebels? And she's like, I don't want anything to do with the rebels. So, which kind is of a Han Solo attitude. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly, though, they're like, they feel the ground quaking around them. And there's this giant worm like creature called a Wandrella that attacks them. And basically choose apart the ship or the crawler. Mm-hmm. So they all have to like flee and run away. And thankfully, I, you know, for a moment there, I didn't think C-3PO was going to make it out. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh no. Yeah. So, you know, Hala, Ki, and uh, Hin, they're running one way with the droids. And they discovered that Luke and Leia had gone off in another direction. And are being chased by this giant worm. And they come across this large pit structure that goes down deep down into the ground mm-hmm. and you know finding like this is the only place they could potentially hide against a creature that could eat a sand crawler or sorry a swamp crawler they go down on this vine ladder and the creature follows them down but it just like keeps falling thankfully just falls down this huge like well or pit or whatever it is yeah but unfortunately, they can't get back to the surface. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, some of the other natives in this world, they were very, they live within the caves. So, there's definitely surface dwellers and underground dwellers. And so, this is like one of those species that had created this kind of tunnel structure. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So, 10 minutes later, you know, Hollow shows up with the others and they're like, oh, well, if you just kind of travel that way, most likely you're going to end up at this kind of town or opening and we could find you there mm-hmm. which you know pretty confident assumption from her <laughs> that tunnel goes to this place specifically yeah definitely gotta go there i'm, I'm sure <laughs> yeah exactly and they're like just head east you know you'll you'll be good underground <laughs> what could possibly go wrong yeah what could go wrong so they walk for 10 minutes and luke's like maybe we should have just waited for them to find us a, a rope to get down but you know it's a little too late for that so. hindsight and all that exactly and you're so right like there's a lot of time that happens when they go underground too 
Um, but I like the description when they're underground where it's like a fairyland. You know, the lichens are beautiful. There's multicolored stalactites and stalagmites and mm-hmm. um, th- there's like, you know, creeks and everything like that. And it's it's quite pretty and like giant mushrooms that so they make like sounds and things like that. So it's kind of reminds me of Avatar in that one mm-hmm. scene. But and she's and Leia's like it's so peaceful down here, and then suddenly she like almost falls down a hole. <laughs> <laughs> peaceful and then and deadly and yeah, very 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 deadly. But eventually the trail leads to this like underwater lake, and <clears throat> there's all these like giant lily pads that they decide that, you know, we're going to use this as a canoe and see that where this lake will take us basically. So they have a nap. So more time spent there and they use crystals as paddles and they, they head off and it's about like 16 hours that they had already been walking underground, mm-hmm. which is like, that's, that's a, you know, that's a lot of time underground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It started start to drive me a little bit crazy. I think. Yeah, exactly. So they, they paddle for about an hour and they're suddenly attacked by this pale creature and Luke is dragged under the water. And I had this moment kind of going, does Luke really know how to swim? Yeah, I remember thinking that too. It's like, if, it, if anyone should know, not know how to swim, it should be Luke <laughs> raised on Tatooine. Exactly. Exactly. But Never seen anything more than a cup of water. <laughs> exactly but he's proficient enough and he managed to like strike against this creature with his lightsaber thankfully and it, it flees and they you know they paddle away for several more hours and you know they approach this ancient dock and that's where they discover like this kind of underground city uh, the city of Threla which is a pretty cool scene mm-hmm. and Leia I like what Leia does. She, so she's like, I, I'm apologizing for all the screaming I did back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then she admits she can't swim. Yeah, I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. Or no, I was shocked by that one. Mm-hmm. I feel like it really should be flipped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Luke should have been the one panicking in the canoe and Leia fought it off because she can swim really well. that would have been great yeah (laughs) so they they enter the city which is like decaying and abandoned and like old metal structures and so they walk through it for some time and suddenly they're surrounded by this other kind of native known as the Kaways and Luke chops one in half accidentally as if you know it's just like oh whoops sorry i know you're attacking me but didn't know my own strength yeah Uh, and these creatures like they have axes and they're you know they're pretty serious it kind of reminds me of of the dwarves you know of of moria Mm -hmm. um leia gets a hold of an axe and totally nicks one guy in the shoulder and he runs off so they're like well we got to go after that guy and kill that guy which is um pretty bold (laughs) <laughs> it's like you're in their city I feel like you should uh, yeah, exactly. be a little bit more cautious right away <laughs> exactly um, so if you want to explain the next scene once they get on top of the rise of the hill and what they see oh I'm I'm blanking honestly okay. so they look down the hill and they see a bonfire ah <laughs> and 
aren't um, Hala and the droids and everyone captured? Yeah. So yeah. They're all tied up to the stalagmites. And they're like surrounded by like 200 kowais. Like, well, you gotta and, admit, Hala was right. Uh, they were going the right way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, she would find them. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and then Leia's like, let's fight in the open, though. Like, we're not running away anymore. I'm tired of running. <laughs> uh, which is pretty crazy. Two versus 200. Okay. Yeah. So they, not the breast move. <laughs> yeah. So they they approach the group and the, the group like having seen, you know, the, the one guy who had escaped ran up and told them basically these guys are some serious warriors, particularly Luke. <laughs> so they kind of part around them and allow them and allow them to speak to Hala and who just kind of explains that, you know, you're going to have to fight against their, their top warrior. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so she basically kind of gave them like a proposal. And at that point they had been debating killing the group that they had captured. And they'd been debating all day, which is why they hadn't been killed yet. Thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of politics going on. It's like, ah, what should we do? Uh, it, well, it's all yeah. very reminiscent of the Ewok stuff in front of the Jedi. Very. Very, yeah, for sure. There's definitely a lot of elements like in this book that you see in Empire Strikes Back and you see in Return of the Jedi, which is really mm-hmm. great. Um, like even just like the terminology, the swear words, or yeah, just moments like this. It was definitely very Ewok like. So, um, the ch- one of the chiefs, because there's three of them, says, you know, he basically berates the dead, even though they're his own people that's saying that it was their own fault for being stupid and getting themselves killed. <laughs> and, and Luke's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, thanks, I think. Yeah. But like, so Hala, she's like, okay, look, I've tried to convince them that we, we will have to fight them. So you're going to fight the top warrior. Um, and if, like you have to do this because the god Kanu would be displeased if they don't fight them, basically. So she kind of used their own, you know, naivete against them, which mm-hmm. was very convenient for them. So he Luke is pinned up against this one guy. If, if you want to explain the fight, what happens with um, with that one guy? Uh, it doesn't Luke like nearly get drowned by this guy, <laughs> like several like- times. Yeah, and it seems like he like used the force to defend himself at one point, but it's like unclear exactly what happens. Yeah, it, you all so, get it from all from like Luke's perspective, and it's kind of unclear how the res- resolution of it. But he wins. Yeah, because yeah, he's being held underwater at that point because mm-hmm. they're fighting in the pond. And this guy, yeah. you know, he was pretty average, but he was like holding Luke down, drowning him, and he had that like peaceful relaxation moment. And smacks him in the head with a rock mm-hmm. through the force, but didn't know that he did that. And so, mm-hmm. like when the fight ended, he even went to Leia saying, "Well, what happened? I I don't know what happened. I don't even know, man." Yeah, <laughs> which is pretty wild that like he just doesn't understand his force powers at this point. Like, how mm-hmm. many other things in his life did he do these kind of moments with? It's a good question. You know. Like Anakin racing the pod racer without realizing what it was, how he was doing it. Exactly. So, you know, they're all the Koei's are like, okay, yeah, you guys are cool now. And 
so they decide they're going to have like this big party and the crowd's cheering and yeah, very, very much like, you know, Return of the Jedi where they're celebrating with the Ewoks and having dinner at this point, um, which is pretty funny. I liked it, but, um, and then the fight had to end where like Luke had to fight the guy, uh, slap the guy across the face again. And like, so like he comes up to him, slaps, and then he slaps back, and just like, okay, now they're now they're all good, and (laughs) And now it is resolved. It's fine. It's all good. So I liked when like the food is passed out, and Hala's like, don't eat that, don't eat that, that could kill you. (laughs) That one's safe. Um, That one's okay. Exactly. Like, who knows what kind of mushrooms are eating down there? So. Leia and Luke, they have this whole moment where they're talking about, you know, what drew her to join the Alliance. And um, she kind of said, like, it was like a lack of creativity from the Empire that really inspired her. Because, like, there was, like, basically the freedom of expression was squashed. And they're all just, you know, boring, lack of art. Um, Which I wonder kind of if uh, Timothy Zahn kind of read into that with that whole lack of art and putting that into his kind of character with Thrawn mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah, I know when Alderaan's been portrayed at later points, it's like, it's a really artistic culture and everything, so it makes sense that that would have been like, being suppressed by the Empire, and that's something that Leia yeah. didn't like, didn't take to. Mm-hmm, exactly. So there, they did have a little moment together where they made eye contact, and he he said it felt like an explosion between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> careful, dude. Careful. Yeah. Oh God, she's your sister. <laughs> so Luke's eating some fruit, and he drops it, and Hala and Leia are both like, "Oh my gosh, is that poisonous?" But Luke just goes, "He's coming." There's a stirring in the force. He felt it before the moment when Ben had died. And obviously Leia realizes he means Vader. Mm-hmm. So Vader has arrived on the van and Leia's trembling and like the dancing, you know, it stops and the music stops and the Koei's begin to panic and say like, there's other humans coming. They have found a way down into their city as well. Um, and then 3PO nearly faints despite fainting is not being possible for a droid (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know 3PO is a special case yeah so immediately the Koways are like we're gonna fight and Luke and Leia are like well uh, you know you guys have axes we may have one blaster between us, but the Koweis had hid them, but thankfully they had returned, they started to return the weapons back to their prisoners. And Hin decides that he's going to use an ax against these Imperial scouts that are starting to filter down into the cave. Um, So the, the droids, they, they conceal themselves and everyone, they kind of just, yeah, they hide amongst all the stones and everything like that. And Leia, she's like, just give me one clear shot at Vader, but promise me, that you will cut my throat before I get captured by Vader again. So serious about it. Yeah. And she's, and Luke's like, that's pretty extreme. She's like, no promise me, which is a pretty intense, like she must have been really, really tortured to be at that limit. 
So everyone's now waiting, hiding. The the Imperials start kind of gradually coming in, and it's like it's narrow. So obviously, it's like you know two by two or three by four. Mm-hmm. And so the first kind of um, Imperials advanced scouts are quickly taken off, and they're smothered and killed, and all those weapons are passed out to everyone else. Luke takes a fresh pistol, and the the main body arrives. So it's like yeah, four by three by four. And they attack. And the troop troopers are just like, what? What is going on? You know, they're unpracticed. <laughs> They've been working on like backwater worlds and things like that. So they're not the five oh first. They're not the top end troops. Exactly. exactly. But you know, obviously they don't have the the best shooting skills. And the Koways, you know, they're they're just annihilating these troopers. They're in their element. <laughs> exactly. So and Hala and Ki, you know, they jump down from above, and it's it's pretty. It's a it's a great battle scene. I quite liked it. Mm-hmm. But and still evo- evoking the Ewok stuff, like you know, Imperials exactly. come into their territory and be like, "Ah, oh, this is our this is our land. We know what we're doing here. Y'all may have better tech, but we have the you know we have the high ground, as it were." The one thing that is alarming, though, is like the the blaster bolts are like. Sp- spidering basically against the walls and they're like ricocheting everywhere so that's uh that was kind of scary but yeah (laughs) yeah so leia i love this moment with her you know she's like i need to get to a higher vantage point so she's crawling up getting to like this pinnacle point and vader comes down and he starts cutting through the callways no problem and he's you know he's he's called by one of his troopers like luke is here so he's getting to luke um and then Grammel, who had had been there as well, but they're quickly outnumbered and they're just, you know, beaten, beaten really, really, really badly. Uh, yeah. So Vader orders the retreat to Grammel to, to retreat. And when he's retreating himself, Leia shoots Vader and sends him sp- spinning. But unfortunately, you know, it was just like a side swipe. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised yeah. Vader didn't sense it coming. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then Leia's just like, well, darn. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Well, she's pretty upset, so. Um, Luke is like, so once they all the Imperials left, Luke's kind of mortified by the Koways because they're killing, you know, the wounded. Mm-hmm. And Leia has this moment where she's like, you know, there's very little in the universe that rises above the mean and the petty. So you just kind of need to get used to this. Mm-hmm. Which is very yeah. true. So, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> at this moment, they're like, okay, well, obviously, you know, Vader's going to be waiting upon the surface for us to get out, but we still need to get to this temple because that's the ultimate part of their mission is they need to get this kyber crystal because Hala says it's important. Then they don't think if Vader gets it, that'd be really bad. Yeah, exactly. So they, they head out, but they go through like the side tunnel and they discover that, well, yeah, cause yeah, they figured Vader had sensed the temple as mm. well. And now Luke, so now Luke's believing that Vader is, is heading that direction. So, and I like that scene where, you know, they, they come out and they see one of those kind of transports had been pointing his guns straight at the cave entrance. Mm-hmm. And then who, it was the, the Usums who like dropped from above. 
<laughs> yeah. They like that, that was, move. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. So they like drop from above onto the Imperials and basically, you know, rip them to shreds, very Wookiee style. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, you know, Leia's like, okay, let's go, let's go. And they're like, no, no, we need to clean up for a moment. And they're like, can't be that bad. And they're like, no, it, it's that bad. <laughs> 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 There's just like arm parts everywhere. Like, oh, <laughs> give us a moment to uh, wash it down. <laughs> yeah. So when Vader is heading towards the temple, and Grammel, he, you know, he's kind of apologizing to Vader, but then you know he's like, you know, no natives have ever had outside advice on how to fight against this. So obviously we got out outnumbered. So, and and then he kind of talks back to Vader. Which was his undoing. <laughs> and Vader chops him in half. Yeah, there he goes, killing his subordinates again. Yeah, yeah, no problem. And they just chuck him onto, you know, the jungle floor. And he's like, well, we'll travel faster without dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. Zing, got him. <laughs> Oh, so funny. So at the temple, somehow Luke and their crew arrive first. And, you know, it's a beautiful structure. It's like volcanic black stone. And it's just like, it looks like, you know, the kind of temple that you would see. And part of it had been slightly collapsed because over time, you know, there has not been any worshipers. But there's <laughs> the statue of Pomogemma, which is the god of Kyber. And in the chest of the statue is the remaining part of the crystal. Mm. The crystal. So, yeah, so they're like, yes, we got here. Vader's not here. We can get the crystal. Then suddenly, of course, this like lizard-like creature walks around the corner and, you know, big yellow eyes and attacks them and blasters flying and fires and lightsabers and the lizard creature chases them and the roof captures crashes in and you know it dies but mm -hmm. the problem is now luke is stuck under like a rock that fell on him mm -hmm. so so like leia is left standing uh hala who knows where she is in this moment she's more or less kind of trying to get the crystal and suddenly guess who shows up but vader <laughs> Old Darth himself. Yeah, and that's that that cover art by Ralph and Corey. Mm -hmm. It's that moment where like L Luke is trapped and Leia is kind of beside him and looking at Vader, who is just like, "Oh, I see nothing but dead men basically in front of me." <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "You know, he killed Hin and Key," which I was very much like, "Oh, oh poor guys." <laughs> Yeah, They've been so helpful not, this whole time. Yeah, I was not expecting that at all, that they had been killed. And Vader had told the droids to turn themselves off because droids are obligated to obey. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, sure, sure. I feel like R2 would have been like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> Vader would have been like, I recognize the gold one. That's That's really weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, so Vader's like, oh, you know, you were the one who shot down the Death Star. I have been searching for you for some time. And, you know, Leia, having been tortured by him, calls him a monster and takes Luke's lightsaber, which is this crazy scene where the two of them fight each other. Yeah, and Leia gets the 
she gets the first duel against Vader. Exactly. Which I was just like, what? You know, I was not expecting that. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course she says like, you know, I'll use the lightsaber on myself before I cooperate with you. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, well, you know, try not to pass out before I kill you. <laughs> Do not smack, smack talk doing this. Yeah. So their duel is pretty interesting. So yeah, Hollow, so she's getting the crystal. Vader and Leia are fighting. Luke's like, I'm stuck under this rock and can't really do anything. <laughs> and, you know, Leia's, it's, she's getting beaten. You know, she gets like a cut across her cheek. She gets a slash across her, her stomach. Um, but she's still like dating him to like, to at least kind of save Luke, which is really noble on her part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of, yeah. the whole, like this whole end situation kind of reminds me of the end of the force awakens. Mm-hmm. With, like Finn taking up the saber, but not being trained or having the force. And, holding Kylo off just a little bit until, you know, Ray saves the day. Yeah, exactly. So Hin was still sort of alive. He was, you know, mortally wounded and he drags himself into the cave and Luke, you know, encourages him to free him. And then they, they he manages to lift off the rock, but that was his last moment. And mm-hmm. unfortunately he dies. So Luke runs and he, runs to Leia and she throws the lightsaber to Luke and thankfully she turned off the lightsaber. <laughs> that would have been awkward. Yeah. She imagined see me. Oh, I feel like that's how it should have ended video. Exactly. Exactly. And Vader's like, you know, I'm done with you. Pushes Leia to the ground and, you know, goes up against Luke and, Luke has this moment, I really like what he does there, because he kind of trips Vader out, where Vader's kind of calling him out, and Luke just goes like, I'm going to kill you, because I'm Ben Kenobi. And that shakes Vader to the core. Mm-hmm. For a moment, you know. And he's like, well, he is guiding me, you know, and they have like this crazy fight, Luke's demonic kind of attacks, um, which is really interesting. And then the second support pillar in the temple collapses around them and they're still goading each other. And this is where that line where he goes, you know, Kenobi trained you well, <laughs> you know, which obviously is featured in empire strikes back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and then another scene where Vader flings his lightsaber and it knocks Luke's from his hand. And then Vader, okay, so here's one of the moments, obviously, this is the only time Vader will ever have this power. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, if you want to explain what the power is. Oh, uh, man, I don't even know if I can explain what the power was. He, like, summons, like, what, the, what do they call it? It's a... Uh, it's like a white ball, basically. Yeah, it's like a, it's like, like Dragon Ball Z, like, summons a Kamehameha blast oh, yeah, or whatever, yeah. and, yeah. like, tries to blast Luke with it. And I actually, I remember whenever me and um, a mother podcast, me and Ben talked about it, apparently this power has been, like, is in one of the visual dictionaries for Rise of Skywalker, I think. True. <laughs> so it's, like, it's actually, like, part of the canon now, which is, is just okay. absolutely wild. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so strange. It's like okay, I've never seen anyone do that before or since. So yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, but he knocks it back into Vader somehow. He like reflects it off his hands, mm-hmm. um, and he's like, you know, it's not possible for such power in a child. 
Uh, Son of Skywalker. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Luke rushes at Vader, and this is crazy. He actually manages to cut off Vader's right arm. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, what? You know, not much blood, obviously. Um, or no blood, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wires and sparking. <laughs> exactly. So, and then Vader's like, whatever, picks up the lightsaber in his left arm and starts striking at Luke. And Luke says, like, I'm sorry, Leia. I loved you. <laughs> like <As> a sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then somehow Vader loses balance and falls into a pit, a well-placed pit, mm-hmm. and um, disappears. We won. We won. Hooray. <laughs> so all is well. Um, obviously, he still senses that Vader's alive, and but just temporarily gone for the moment. So Luke joins Leia on the ground, and she's basically mostly dead in this moment. Mm. You know, very Princess Bride-like. Uh, not quite alive, but... And then Hala, she comes up and, you know, she, Hala totally was going to leave them. Mm. And, and then she kind of has that moment of, oh, maybe I should go back. She has the Han Solo moment. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and she returns back for them and she gives Luke the crystal saying, you know, this, it, it just wasn't worth it for her to have it anymore. And she calls herself a charlatan, basically. Mm-hmm. And then he passes out. And then, so does the crystal in this moment heal him? I think so. I think that's what's implied. Okay. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's vague and unclear. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't too sure. Um, so yeah, he basically comes alive again and I like the reference that Alan Dean Foster uses here. He said, he says the light is like the St. Elmo's fire, which is an old kind of weather phenomenon that um, ships would often see across the mm. water. And so I was like, Ooh, you know, like you don't often get too many, you know, earth references mm-hmm. in star Wars books. So, um, so Luke wakes up and he says he remembers dying. So whether or not he did die or I'm not quite sure. And a near death <laughs> experience for sure. Yeah. And then he takes the, the, the Kyber crystal and he touches the scar on Leia's face and across her stomach, and it vanishes, and it heals her. So she's okay. She's alive mm-hmm. again, um, which is uh, which is great. And then, yeah, so C-3PO and R2, they come in, and they're confused, um, but they're <laughs> smiling. And then C-3PO, you know, of course, the C-3PO is like, why is everyone laughing at me, you know? <laughs> oh, 3PO. Oh, 3PO. <clears throat> Always the comic relief, but... Yeah, I thought it was unfortunate in the end where he was not obviously able to bring back Key and Hin in the story. Mm-hmm. So, but they do keep the crystal, and that is basically the end of the story. They still have their mission to go off to on the fourth planet. Yeah, we don't even get to see if they like how they steal a ship or anything. Yeah, no, it's done. This is the end. <clears throat> I mean, they're like like a couple weeks into the jungle, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, they gotta get back and they don't, they don't have a ship anymore. It's destroyed. Uh, mm. 
Well, a couple <laughs> couple weeks by like by transport, and they're on foot now. I feel like there's another story there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a story for another day. But obviously, you know, this book was meant to be kind of if the New Hope failed, this would be the way to kind of wrap up some of the story, mm-hmm. lead into other books possibly. But yeah. you know, it was um, not the story they needed after. It proved to be such a success. Yeah, after A New Hope turned into the you know blockbuster that it is. Yeah. This is exactly. kind of just this kind of strange, odd sequel thing that's hmm. like still fits pretty well, but it's also like like Han Solo's like notably out absent in it because yeah. I didn't know if Harrison Ford would come back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's something that he mentioned that because he wasn't in the contracts uh, yet, they didn't put the character in. So mm-hmm. um, which I think there's sense. like one mention of him in the story, but that's okay. it. Yeah. Which makes sense. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. I thought it was a story that really still fits in with star Wars, despite the kind of like odd tension between the two characters, but mm-hmm. you know, like but, the, the world he created is it's so like how you see other star Wars mm-hmm. worlds in the books. Um, and then yeah. obviously it's been put into like other movies, other books. And you know, it's just, it's, kept it's been kept going and thanks to Alan Dean Foster who really helped create the expanded universe. Yeah, like he's like him and then um uh Brian Daly was the guy that wrote the Han Solo adventures and then I forget who wrote the Lando adventures. That was like that's like the original era of the expanded universe as it was. And then yeah. there was the gap until Timothy Zahn kicked it all off again. Exactly. Like these guys yeah. are the grandfathers and Timothy Zahn was the father of the, of the EU. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the book. Um, I really loved Leia's character in it. You know, she had so much gumption and just um, pizzazz that uh, it was very much like Carrie. You know, mm-hmm. I, could, I could see Carrie liking the story of how they wrote Leia. I was sad that obviously those two characters did die. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those like they're the like side characters that unfortunately end up biting the dust in it. Yeah, but exactly. They're they're pretty good characters all throughout the whole thing, though. Exactly. I would like to thinking they're going to be monsters, and they end up being really helpful and exactly. ultimately sacrifice themselves to help out. Yeah, I would like to see um, where Hollow comes from, and if there's any continuation ever of her character, because I, yeah. you know. She has some force powers. She had mm-hmm. some use. Yeah, you'd think. Well, I'm actually going to look that up real quick, see if there's any. Does she ever show up anywhere else? Yeah. I'm not I feel like she sure. doesn't, though. I don't think she does. I mean, like, I would probably have her kind of tie in with, you know, something with Courtship of Princess Leia, for example, or mm-hmm. her ending up in some backwater world where suddenly all the Jedi have to get everyone to help out against the Imperials, but yeah. 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 Just, just in this and then the comic book version of this story. Yeah. Okay. I'm really surprised that no one ever picked that back up. Yeah. Even, That's even for like a small reference. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Well, that being said, um, Cole, if you want to announce what our next book series that we're planning on starting on the show, Yep. Next up, we're going to be doing our first in, or I guess our revisit of the first Rogue Squadron book, at least for the podcast. Neither yeah. one of us were here at the time, but we're going to be doing the first Rogue Squadron book. 
mm-hmm. or a first X-Wing book, which is Rogue Squadron. Exactly. In anticipation of the movie that was announced. Exactly. I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, obviously we're going to go through all of the X-Wing books when we can. And we will, you know, throw in Courtship of Princess Leia into the mix since it uh, directly leads into that, mm-hmm. that story. So we'll get some, you know, bringing back of the main X-Wing characters, which uh, I don't know too many of. Other than... Get some good wedge content. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I've seen them over the years mentioned and you're just kind of like, oh, okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm excited. Your main exposure to them, I guess, would have been like in the New Jedi Order. A lot of them show up. Yeah. So a couple of those are by Max Dykepole and... A couple of Myron Austin, so you, you've met some of the characters at some point. Though. Exactly, and then some of them referenced in Legacy of the Force, <laughs> and, uh, um, and then one being a lawyer eventually. I think. Oh yes, yes. Uh, yes. What's oh, man, I can't remember his name now. The Duros lawyer, yeah. No, he's a Twilight, I believe. Oh, was he? Twi- uh, oh, sorry. I yeah. think the I lawyer think. for uh, what's her what's her name? <gasps> Tahiri. Yeah, Tahiri Vela. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So that'll be great. That'd be great to to meet all these characters finally. So, Cole, if you want to let the listeners know how to get a hold of you, uh, best place is on Twitter at Mando Wraith, and then I'm also on a couple other podcasts, um, Abra Skywalkers, where we're in the middle of covering Republic Commando Triple Zero, mm-hmm. and Skyhoppers, which is just a general Star Wars podcast, talk about whatever's in the news or whatever we decide to talk about that week, random mm-hmm. stuff. Awesome. Relevant or irrelevant. <laughs> Great. And everyone, if you want to check us out, you can find us on legendslibrarypodcast.com, also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and please, definitely listeners, go take a look at alandeanfoster.com. He's, he's got all of his books. He's on listed on there. He's got just an amazing repertoire of data. And he talks about, you know, his music on there. And of course, I'll do some posts about the music we mentioned during um, when he was on the show. So thanks, everyone, again, for listening to Legends Library. I'm Lisa. And I'm Cole. And may the force be with you. That concludes this edition of Legends Library. To join the discussion, please email the show at legendslibrarypodcast at gmail.com or comment and follow us on Twitter at Legends Library. Also, if you've not done so already, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment or informational purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. Star Wars, all names, sounds, and any other related items are registered trademark and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark or copyright holders. Legends Library. There's always a bit of truth in Legends. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.